This is episode number 329 with data storytelling coach, Isaac Reyes. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. We've got over two and a half thousand video tutorials, over 200 hours of content, and 30 plus courses with new courses being added on average once per month. And you can get access to all this today just by becoming a Super Data Science member. There is no strings attached. You just need to go to superdatascience.com and sign up there, cancel at any time. In addition, with your membership, you get access to any new courses that we release, plus all the bonuses associated with them. And of course, there are many additional features that are in place or are being put in place as we speak such as the Slack channel for members where you can already today connect with other data scientists all over the world or in your location and discuss different topics such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, visualization and more or just hang out in the pizza room and have random chats with fellow data scientists. Also another feature of the Super Data Science platform is the office hours where every week we invite valuable guests in the space of data science and interrogate them about their techniques, about their methodologies in the space of data science. And you actually get a presentation from the guest and you get an opportunity to ask Q&A at the end. And in some of our office hours, we just present some of the most valuable techniques that our hosts think are going to be valuable to you. So all of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super pumped to have you back here on the show today. And today's guest is an expert data storyteller, a founder of a coaching firm in the space of data visualization and data storytelling and a TEDx speaker, Isaac Reyes. So Isaac is the founder of StoryIQ, a company which previously was known as Dataseer and recently they've rebranded. And what they do there is they go into companies and actually teach data science teams on how to present, how to tell stories with data so that they can deliver better insights to their executives. Um, they've worked with some of the some leading companies in the space of technology. Yeah, in the U.S. and across the world, and what was very what is very exciting is that this is a space that is definitely booming right now because data science has been around for a decade now, and more and more companies are seeing that there's value in data science. But the problem is the communication. You've heard me a couple of times mention on this podcast that the most in demand data scientists, the highest paid data scientists. Uh, the most popular data scientists are the ones who can act as a bridge 
between the technical insights and the audience that needs to act upon those insights. Because one thing is to be able to crunch numbers and build models, but a whole different thing is to be able to explain those models, to explain those insights to the business decision makers and stakeholders. And so that's what Isaac does. He coaches people how to do that. He coaches whole teams. And in this podcast, he shared some of his key takeaways, his key insights that you can already apply in your career today. So here's a brief overview of some of the exciting things we talked about. Uh, first of all, of course, we uh, defined what data storytelling is and why it's important. Uh, then we talked about the four keys to data storytelling. So Isaac has his own methodology, which he's developed over the years, and you'll find out what the four key ingredients of data storytelling. And we talked about the first three at the start of the podcast, and we get carried away with, with visualization. So now uh, you'll hear the fourth one towards the end of the podcast. It'll come up and then we'll, it'll trigger another conversation there. We almost forgot to dive into it. Uh, then you'll find out what an impact metric is and other little hacks in you can use in your visualizations. And then we'll actually dive into psychology behind visualization, something I've never done before. And I really appreciated that in Isaac's approach that it's very profound and well-researched, a very scientific approach to data visualization. So you'll actually understand how people think about visualizations and how you can better structure visualizations to facilitate the understanding of these visualizations. So uh, specifically, we'll talk about the Cleveland and McGill um, uh, theory, or also it's called the ranking of elementary perceptual tasks scale by Cleveland and McGill. And uh, you, this will help understand which charts to use and why. A very scientific approach to selecting a chart. And then we'll talk about the Gestalt laws. Uh, specifically, we'll cover the proximity law and the law of similarity. Um, and those are also, there's another scientific approach to visualization. So in a nutshell, that's just a few of the topics that we talked about on this podcast. Uh, there's many more insights and I can't wait for you to learn from Isaac and get uh, the valuable knowledge that he's about to share. So without further ado, I bring to you a data storytelling coach, Isaac Reyes. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super pumped to have you back here on the show. And today's super special guest is Isaac Reyes calling in from Manila, Philippines. Isaac, how are you going today? I'm going well, Carol. It's great to be here. Wow. I'm very excited to have you here, man. I, when I was calling you, I thought you were going to be in Sydney, but as we discussed, you're in Manila now. Um, but yeah, so cool to talk to an Aussie again. Like, uh, I love, I love uh, some things. Like in one of your talks, you, you use the word mate, and uh, it's, yes. it's such a common thing in Australia. Yeah, that's right. So just in terms of being in Manila, like I, I bounce around a lot. It's the life of a data science trainer. And in regards to the accent, um, you know, I could talk to you like this, mate, but I'm just going to turn that off for the blog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, so uh, I was wondering, like in our company, in Super Data Science, on Slack, we, I don't know, maybe like inadvertently, but I've always been using hey mate, hey mate, hey mate, with everybody I work with. And now it's become like a habit. And I don't even know, like until I watched your talk just recently, I was like, oh, I only realized then that in other countries, they don't say that. Like, what do people say to each other in a work environment, like in the US, for example? Like, how do they address each other if not by name? Yeah, I've, I've, we've been doing a fair bit of work in the US. I've noticed in, in more casual work cultures, it's more of like a, hey, what's up? Yeah. 
Yeah, but the mate is, uh, yeah, not as common. Interesting, interesting. I should check, check with our team because like, we have 16 <laughs> people from all around the world. They're all using Hey Mate now. And <laughs> I only now realize it's not a common thing around in other countries. No. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, how's, how's Manila these days? Uh, yeah, so we just uh, had a typhoon pass through yesterday, Typhoon Tisoy, and uh, it uh, caused a, quite a bit of havoc down in the south of the country. But uh, Manila, we were fairly untouched. I mean, just strong winds and rains and, and flooding and, and company closures. But that, that's pretty mild in terms of just how bad it can get here when a typhoon decides to rear its ugly head uh, in, in terms of the more powerful ones. So, so we got off okay. Wow. Wow. Well, good. It's good to hear that everything kind of passed by. All right. How How is Manila in general? Like I've been to the Philippines. I've been to Cebu, uh, to the northern part of Cebu. So that's like one of the islands there. And also to Malapascal above that, mostly for scuba yeah. diving. But like I've never been to Manila. What's it like? Yeah, look, uh, Manila, I mean, it's, it's a city with 20 something million people. Mm. Uh, and it's going million. through a period. That's it's like insane. the size yeah. of Australian population almost. Like we have 25 yeah. million in the whole of Australia. This is just one city. That's it. Yeah. Packed into like, I don't know, it must be like uh, 30 kilometers across or something like that. So it's just an insane uh, population density in the city. Uh, but it's the so the numbers just came out the other day. The country is growing faster than any other country Wow. Uh, in in Asia, mm-hmm. so it's a, just a really exciting place to be uh, with just all the growth and and all of the companies are starting to get more data driven uh, as well. So you know I'm not here permanently. I mm-hmm. bounce around between here and Singapore, Sydney, and and New York. But mm-hmm. it's it's whenever I'm here, it's just uh, a great uh, energy uh, mm-hmm. because the people are just uh, so friendly and and uh, everyone's just positive about where the country's going. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you mentioned before the podcast, it was it just made sense for you to set up a shop or you set up your data science uh, visualization training company uh, in Manila. Why was that? Could you just clarify for our listeners, please? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So there's some amazing, especially data viz and data storytelling uh, talent here. So we're primarily a company that focuses on data viz presentations and data storytelling. And whilst the data science community is more in its infancy here, um, there are really amazing uh, data viz and uh, data storytelling professionals here. Um, I'm half Filipino myself. And, you know, a lot of Filipinos have this kind of uh, uh, affinity for the creative arts. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that uh, the people we've hired here really bring that into their data stories. They add flair. Um, the way they tell stories is is world class. And so, yeah, we, we made a strategic decision to have uh, a major office here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Very cool. And uh, how long ago was that move? Um, so we first started in 2014. So yeah, we've had an office here for five years now. Mm, interesting. And having said that, even though like your office is in Manila, you've worked with some of the leading companies. I know you asked not to disclose the names on the podcast, but like some of the leading companies in technology in Silicon Valley. How, how does that add up? Yeah. So data storytelling is a it's, it's kind of like a niche in data, data science that's quite hot right now. Mm-hmm. And we started just putting out some thought leadership pieces, um, going to some conferences. So we, myself and my, my co-founder, Dominic, 
Um, we, we have done a few talks at some of the bigger data science conferences like ODSC. Um, we've both put out TED Talks. And so what we found is that um, some of the leading companies in the US and Europe, they, they would find these talks um, online and then reach out and say, look, you know, we really need um, these skills for our team, just how to kind of take business data and convert it into a compelling message. And so, yeah, they just, they reached out that way. Okay, very, very cool. Um, and yeah, like I'm burning to find out more about your method of data storytelling and teaching data storytelling. So, you know, without further ado, let's dive straight into it. Like yeah, what, what is data storytelling? Yeah, so at its essence, data storytelling is about taking business data and presenting it to your audience in a way that they can consume, but also a way that gets them to actually feel something so that they can go and take action. Mm -hmm. And what I find is that, and I, I was guilty of this for many years as, as my in my career as a data scientist, I would just present charts mm -hmm. and information. Mm -hmm. And, and when you just present charts and information and tables or, 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 or metrics, um, you're just presenting facts. And people don't feel anything when they just read facts. Why, why is it important for people to feel something? Because people just don't go and take action mm. unless they feel something, right? They have to feel fear or they have to feel inspired, right? Imagine, you know, I think back to all the times I, I tried to lose weight. Mm. Um, the only, the only times I ever really got going was when I felt like, oh, okay, this is just really bad. I'm not in a, a place where I'm <laughs> right now. Right. And, 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 but that's when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm doing a meal plan. I'm doing, you know, a gym plan. So, so you need to get your stakeholders to actually feel something, mm -hmm. um, if they, if they're going to take action and look, raw numbers can get people to feel something like if you just show someone a table that shows that, you know, net profit, you know, you've lost a hundred million dollars for the quarter that, that will get people to feel something <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> but, but you can, um, with numbers that aren't so extreme, but, are perhaps indicative of a longer term problem, you know, you, you may need to take those numbers and then layer compelling narrative and storyboarding and staging in your story to, to, to really influence change and get people to feel, uh, something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, you were saying you, you have been guilty yourself of just presenting facts rather than making people feel something. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, uh, I used to work at Quantium, uh, many years ago, which is a, you've probably heard of them at data analytics company based down in Sydney. Mm -hmm. Um, and then after that, I, I taught statistics for a little bit. Um, and then I headed up a data science, uh, team for a company called Altus, uh, also down in Sydney. And, um, all through that period, um, I would, you know, while I was working for those companies, I, I would present pretty much just the data in a fairly dry way. Um, and it, it wasn't until I started presenting to higher level executives that some of them would mention, you know, like, let's, let, let's make this have more impact. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that kind of got me thinking around, okay, how do I make it have more impact? And, and really, it comes down to the narrative that you use, like, visually, um, if you're presenting in a slide deck or in a dashboard, like, what verbal narrative is written there? And then if it's in a presentation, um, what verbal narrative is, is the uh, presenter actually delivering 
uh, through their mouth in the presentation. Mm -hmm. All of that's really, really key. Okay. Okay. Let's talk a bit about the keys to data storytelling. In one of your presentations, you mentioned like the four components. Would you mind walking us through that? Yeah, no worries. Um, so we've thought a lot about the best way of teaching data storytelling skills in like one or two days. And what we've done is we've distilled it down into just four simple keys. Mm -hmm. uh, the first key is the audience. Mm -hmm. If you're creating a data story, you've got to think, who is my audience and what do they need to know? Now, that's and actually that's where a lot of data scientists really go wrong uh, because they start to think, um, okay, I'm interested in X, Y, Z and ABC. And so I'm just going to present all of that to my audience when maybe your audience is only interested in, you know, X and C, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be really careful around like, what are you presenting? And if you're and this is very common in the data science community. You've done all this analysis. You've worked really hard to do all this great analysis. And, <laughs> and like, like an excited puppy dog. You, you want know, to unleash all of it onto your audience. Exactly. Just like, you know, I used to have a dog that would like bring me, you know, this kind of whatever he'd find on the street and like dump it on my porch. And, and it's like, okay, good dog. But, you know, I, I wasn't really interested in that. <laughs> uh, and, and so so it's kind of like that. Like we we are like those excited puppy dogs. And we're mm. like, look at all this great analysis that I did um, when often it's about, okay, what deserves to go into the main presentation and what am I going to push to the appendix here? Mm -hmm. um, so, so the audience is number one. Mm -hmm. um, now, once we've figured out, oh, and I, sorry, I will mention one more thing about the audience. Um, that's really key in deciding what media are you going to use to present mm. your data story. And this, I can't tell you so many times where I'll work with a, an analytics team and it's like, okay, why did we use Power BI here? Mm -hmm. And people look around and go, well, we bought a Power BI license like mm -hmm. last month. That's why we use Power BI. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, for a certain, I, I have seen a team create this amazing interactive dashboard and then present it to their stakeholder. And the stakeholder kind of says, okay, look, I love the work that went into this. And this is going to be a useful tool for like this other team. Um, but I just really wanted a three minute PowerPoint deck that yeah. tells me what I need to do to move the business forward. Um, so yeah, so, so really being audience centric with every single design decision that we make through the data storytelling creation process from media, um, through to the metrics we choose, even down to, you know, the, the colors and the, and the color palette and all of that. So, so audiences first, mm -hmm. then the second key is the data. So we've got to get the right data that our audience is interested in. And often that's easier said than done because obviously we've got to link data from various sources and, and prepare it for analysis. Um, but more key is metric selection. And this is an area where I went so wrong mm. early in my career in this area where I would you know, I'd be in, maybe I'd be in stat mode where I'm like, okay, average, mean, median mode, that's standard deviation and all of that. Um, and the thing is, the metrics that statisticians use are often very different to the metrics that a business is most interested in. And so a business might be interested in, uh, more interested in totals, counts, uh, total profit, uh, percentage churn, metrics that you didn't learn in stat 101. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, and so so the that key is all the the data key is all about going. 
um, yeah, what metrics are we going to use? And it's more often than not a combination of metrics that is going to best answer um, the business question at hand. Um, so, so to give an ex- yeah, go ahead. So by data, you mean not just uh, like the incoming data that you need to collect, but also what is your data that you're going to present going to look like? What kind of uh, uh, aspects of the data are you going to focus on? What are, like, as you said, metrics are you going to derive? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I probably could have defined it more clearly. Exactly. So it's, yeah, it's, it's about, yeah, just data ingest mm-hmm. and then cleaning it up and getting it ready uh, for reporting. Um, and then, yeah, exactly as you said, um, what are the actual uh, pieces of numerical information that make it into the final uh, presentation? Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. So you're going to give an example? Yeah. So the example is, uh, I was working with a telco the other day and someone was creating this amazing data story around customer churn. Mm-hmm. And the initial draft of the uh, data story just showed the percentage of customers that they lost mm-hmm. uh, in that quarter. And that's all well and good, but the C-level execs are also going to be interested in not just the percentage of customers we lost, but dollars lost. Like you've got to bring it back to how much money um, have we lost this quarter and on an ongoing basis, how much are we going to lose? And then also the count as well. So what the execs ended up wanting there was this nice combination of percentage uh, of customers who left plus revenue lost plus uh, the count. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. And so that was... uh something they overlooked and they had to like correct the presentation afterwards? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got audience, we've got data, ingest and output, and what are the other two components? Yeah, so now we're getting to the really exciting one, which is the visuals. Mm-hmm. So you know who your audience is, you know the data you wanna present, now it's like, how are we showing this? And a lot of data viz uh, professionals will often jump the gun and go, well, I've gotta use a chart, But sometimes a table will outperform a chart, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly when you've got lots of uh, different variables that need to be shown in close proximity to each other. Uh, There is a point where you just can't force all of those variables into a chart uh, unless it's going to be a chart that looks very, very busy. Mm -hmm. So it's about deciding when do I use tables and when do I use charts? Um, And then sometimes you actually use neither of those. Sometimes it might be and uh, well, what we call it story IQ, we, we call it a impact metric. Mm-hmm. So that's just w- one single number that you've decided this is really important. I'm going to blow this up in size and, and pr- give it prominence. Like just like think of a Steve Jobs keynote where he just puts like one number on the screen. That's, mm-hmm. that's what an impact metric is. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And, okay. Makes sense. Yeah. And so, so the visuals key to data storytelling is, is all about what key am I going to use? Uh, sorry, what uh, display mechanism am I going to use to display my data? Now, if you've decided to go with a chart, and, and charts obviously are very compelling, then it's about, well, how do I choose the right chart mm-hmm. for the job? And what we found is, and, and I was guilty of this myself, uh, people don't often have a solid methodology for chart selection. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? I can totally agree with that. It's uh, often it's just random. Okay. What, yeah. let me try this. Looks good. Okay. Let's go with that. 
Yeah, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. And, and, you know, sometimes I say that, like, you know, chart selection is mainly just driven by divine inspiration. <laughs> you know, p- people just trial and error until like, oh, yeah, that looks pretty. And I guess it shows the data. Um, so uh, now the good news is that psychologists and statisticians have collaborated on this problem. Uh, and uh, there's been a bunch of research. Um, William Cleveland and Robert McGill in 1984 wrote some amazing papers in this area. And they've summarized for us um, what chart types perform well for certain data types mm-hmm. and, and what chart types don't perform well. Uh, and so that, that third key is about choosing the right chart types, uh, but not based on what you think looks nice, but based on the science of human vision and perception. Interesting. Can you share some things from that? This is, this is the one from your talk that um, the research was called the ranking of elementary perceptual tasks scale, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it was a really interesting study that these gentlemen did. So um, Cleveland and McGill were two uh, statisticians uh, working at AT&T in 1984. AT&T? And like the... Yeah. What? They were around in 1984? Yeah, yeah, the old school, yeah, AT&T. Wow. Yeah, I think that that might have even been more of their glory days than, than now, <laughs> oh. I'm not sure. <laughs> All right, okay. So what uh, what did they come up with? Okay, so they, you know, th- these guys were interested, you know, uh, what, what charts perform well? Bar charts, pie charts, line charts, uh, dot plots, scatter plots, etc. So what they did was they said, let's round up 51 uh, human participants. Uh-huh. Uh, for an experiment, and let's break down charts into what they called elementary perceptual tasks. Uh-huh. And and so they said, okay, a bar chart, in its essence, a basic bar chart just asks you to compare lengths. Yeah. Right. And and then a uh, a line chart, at its very essence, is asking you to compare points against a y-axis. Uh huh. Makes right? sense. Right. And so. Yep. Makes sense. All right. And then and then a pie chart asks you to compare uh, areas. Mm-hmm. OK. And I guess you could say angle as well. But um, so they broke down every single chart type into what they called its elementary perceptual task, mm-hmm. um, i.e. The, the task that the user has to perform in their brain to, to perceive differences uh, in, in the numbers. And then they ran a series of experiments on these 51 uh, participants. It was a pretty good, like, good experimental design. I used to actually work as a biostatistician many years ago. So I was quite critical, like, when I was reading the study. But it's, it's very well designed. And then what they found is that certain chart types just beat the living crap out <laughs> of um, other chart types. And, and it, would, it would just surprise you. Um, so... Um, you, you, you're probably aware already, but you know the the so they found that comparing positions against a common axis uh, is something humans do very very well. So like line charts, line axis, line chart, yeah, yeah, I- exactly. So yeah, so so the line chart uh, performs really well. Um, any any guesses what else what what else might perform well, Carol? Well, I've seen your talk, so <laughs> I know the answers. Um, the next one would be if you shift uh, the y-axis for one of the lines, um, humans still do a pretty good job. Ab- absolutely, yeah. So that that's exactly what they found. So if you've got um, Let's say you've got two line charts on your slide. Yeah. Uh, but one of the line charts is positioned a bit lower than the other one. Yeah. 
and then you want people to compare across charts. Uh, what they found is that generally, like you don't want to do that. Like you want to align everything if you can on the same axis. But they they did find that if you do do that, it's it's not it's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, you do lose a little bit of uh, accuracy there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the accuracy third, of perception. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I should probably uh, thresh that out a bit more. So it's about. So what they would do in these perceptual tasks is they would ask people, okay, uh, what do you think the distance is between these two dots? Yeah. Uh, based on, you know, what you've been given on the y-axis. And they would find that, um, you know, the guesses of the humans uh, relative to the actual uh, measurements for some perceptual tasks would, would just be so much higher than others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So line chart, two line charts on the same y-axis with the same y-axis is the top number one. Number two is two line charts with slightly shifted, like y-axis is not, doesn't start at the same level, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. What's number three? And and then moving down the scale, um, the regular bar chart uh, on a flat baseline where you're comparing lengths generally performs quite highly it's it's a good robust chart type i like the example you gave uh where it's like you and your brother standing and comparing heights yeah that's, like standing that's it back to back that that's it yeah humans just do a great job of looking at two people standing back to back and and guessing what is the difference in their height uh-huh. uh, we're, we're extremely good at that mm-hmm yeah, and and that carries over to the bar chart. Uh, you know, we we are we are good at comparing uh, heights and lengths uh, on a flat baseline. So, so yeah, so so far we've we've established that the, the the line chart and the bar chart uh, are, are two great ch- uh, chart types. Um, the standard bar chart that is. Um, when we move down again, though, in the next experiment, um, they were comparing lengths on a non-flat baseline. Mm-hmm. So I want you to imagine, Kirill, that, you know, I, I was in Brisbane and I'm standing on a table mm-hmm. trying to compare my height to you when you're standing on the floor. Mm-hmm. Harder. And, and then, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we go and ask someone to guess the difference in our heights and, and they're really going to struggle to put an accurate number on that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of bar charts, what's the, what's the analogy there? Yeah, so so this goes back to the stacked bar chart. Mm-hmm. So stacked bar charts perform reasonably well for the uh, the bars that are on the baseline mm-hmm. at the bottom of your chart because they get the flat base. But for all of the, I call it the middle stack syndrome problem. <laughs> for, you know, for for all of those like you know components in the middle, you you can't follow a trend in them uh, if if it's time based data. Uh, if you've got a categorical x-axis, then you just are sitting there struggling to yeah. compare their lengths. Yeah, I, I love the example you give with the uh, what's it called, Business Insider charts. Like, why? Why? Uh, yes. Tell us why do you like Business Insider charts? Yeah, uh, I'll get myself in trouble for saying this, but you know, um, I, I actually check Business Insider every day because they've got a section of their website that's called Chart of the Day. Yeah. 
and and every day they upload a a new new chart and you know they have some commentary about it but i i do enjoy that website because it's an excellent reliable source of bad charts for my (laughs) training courses love it love it um Yeah, so we'll share that example of the bad chart uh, called Apple Global Revenue Share. Uh, And indeed, like stack bar charts, whenever I look at them, like it's so hard, as you say, like especially towards the middle, like can't tell what is going on. If they're not labeled, you cannot compare like this slight gradual differences between consecutive Mm. bars. Yeah, absolutely. So does that mean like never to use stack bar charts? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, And and hard to answer in a way, but... um, and uh, the reason it's hard to answer is that in data viz, you really never want to. Uh, what I found is that you you probably don't want to be saying never mm-hmm. for certain things. Um, now I will say never in regards to exploded three D pie charts. <laughs> um, never never use those. But but generally you can always you can usually find a situation where you can break the rules. Mm-hmm. So I, I find like data storytelling is is like any other artistic endeavor. It, it's sort of like, yes, there are rules and we generally don't break those rules, but sometimes you can find exceptions where it does make sense uh, to break them. Uh, generally, I would avoid stacked bar charts where I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are often alternatives um, that, that can be used. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. so yeah, generally they are avoided just because of this yeah, problem of not being able to compare the lengths accurately mm-hmm. uh, of the middle segments. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. And what comes after that? What's, what's even worse than a stacked bar chart? Yeah, so even worse than uh, humans' abilities to compare lengths on a non-flat baseline uh, uh, is humans' ability to compare areas mm. and angles. Um, and we can probably all think of a chart that uh, involves the comparison of areas and angles, the lovely pie chart. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, there's been some great commentary about pie charts over the years. Um, Edward Tufty, author of the book, uh, The Visual Display of Quantitative Information, uh, he says the only thing worse than a pie chart is several of them. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, great quote. Yeah. Why, why do you think people are so bad at comparing areas? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I'm i not sure. I, I You know, it could be uh, how we've evolved uh, uh-huh. over time. Uh, so I've got my own personal theories on this that are probably a bit wacky. But my, one of my theories is that um, we compare um, heights really well uh-huh. because – Thousands of years ago, humans were pretty uniformly uh, like our area, like our, our width. It was, you know, pretty well, not, not really uniform, but but height was the thing that you would look at to kind of size up uh, someone that was that was coming at you or uh-huh. to size up prey and, and things like that. So so I, I I that was one theory I had around, you know, why height was so important. Um, but um yeah, why why are we so bad at areas? I mean, I, I think area is uh, is a more complicated uh, thing to compare uh, between two areas, right? So with height, think about it uh, in kind of mathematical terms. We're only looking at one dimension, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whereas area is like two dimensions. And I think our brain is just, you know, it's got like another hundred thousand years of evolution before we can actually do a better job of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I reckon like if you even if you like draw two circles side by side, one like one big one and one small one, uh, 
the first thing, if you try to compare them, the first thing your mind does is looks at the height of each circle and compares that. Mm. Whereas the area is, you know, what is it? Uh, P, P, R, uh, P, R squared, right? P or P, yes. T squared divided by four. Um, the the area is squared version or a squared analogy of the height. And your brain needs yes. to square that. And we're not good at, we're not linear thinkers. We're not quadrat or uh, squared thinkers. We don't think in square terms. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I didn't think of it that way. And absolutely, yeah, we, we are very linear. Yeah, mm. makes sense. Interesting. Okay, cool. So avoid areas at all costs, uh, predominantly sometimes use bar charts and uh, the best option is your simple line chart. That's right. And and I'd add the dot plot as another great uh, chart as well. So, you know, like let's say we were comparing the uh, GPAs of like 10 students. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what you can do is just have the x-axis is the name of each student, uh, the y-axis is uh, average GPA, and then instead of having a bar, uh, you can just have a dot, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and that, that's another high-performing um, chart type. Um, and, and then the lowest on the scale is color. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Why is that? Yeah. Yeah, so let's say I, uh, let's use the GPAs example. So we've got 10 students, uh, their GPAs range from, I'll use the Australian system here for some universities. It's like from, from one to four. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then oh, actually, I think it's zero to four, actually, if you fail everything. <laughs> um, so, um, and, and so instead of encoding, you know, a 3.5 as, you know, a certain length bar and a four and a four as another length bar, um, you, you could encode them as color. So like a heat map. Uh, yeah. Like a heat map. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we, we just suck at it right? um, <laughs> as, as in, it's like, you know, so you, you're looking at one shade of like, I don't know, greeny red, and, mm-hmm. and then you're looking at some other color of red. And then you ask someone, well, how much better did this person score than ah, the other person just, yeah, yeah. just based on color? And, and it's just like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, and, and well, it calls into question heat maps in general. It's like, well, if we don't encode uh, numbers as, uh, if we can't convert uh, hue and uh, saturation of colors back into numbers, then why do we use heat maps? Um, and, and, you know, why don't we just kind of stick bars on, you know, our maps, uh, since we encode lengths better than, than colors. And I, I think heat maps really are still useful, but they're more useful for outlier detection. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you just need to see that one color is really different to the others, that's when they work well. Or when you don't need to uh, see the magnitude of the effect, but rather just like a, yes. a, a trend or like overall gradient that, you know, like the east of the of US has, you know, larger snowfall or, you know, central US and, and so on. Just kind of like see which yeah. way to look at rather than measuring like the magnitude of the effect. Great point. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Um, I got another one for you. Can you walk us through? So that was the... Uh, Cleveland McGill theory, which yes. I, I found very exciting, and we'll you know link to that in the show notes if somebody wants to read a bit more about that. Could you talk a bit about the Gestalt laws? I found that part of like your training extremely insightful as well. Sure, sure. So, you know, let's say we're producing a line chart, and I'm using ggplot 
2 or I'm using Excel or something like that. The legend will almost always automatically be at the bottom of your chart. Mm -hmm. And the big problem with this is that your eyes have to track from each uh, categorical component of the legend up to the line. And then you go, oh, okay, that word links with that line. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't sound like much work, but it definitely adds up, particularly if you've got like four or five lines uh, on your line chart. And it's just extra cognitive uh, work that your user has to do. Mm -hmm. and, and so some German psychologists in the 1920s uh, discovered some laws that kind of govern the way humans see the world around us. And, and these laws are still taught uh, in third year psych up to this day. And they really just discovered that humans see certain things that are arranged in certain ways uh, or have certain uh, design traits as being grouped together. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so one of these is uh, proximity. And so humans just see things that are near each other as being close together. Mm -hmm. uh, and so can you, can you give an example? one of just the quick. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, let's just say, let me just think. Um, all it's right, it's you, hard. You, it's hard with, with no <laughs> video, right? Just on a podcast. It is. No, but it, it's, I, I, treat, I treat this as an interesting challenge, actually. Um, so, so let's say that um, you, you walk into a, a crowded room. Mm-hmm. And rather than, um, you know, the people standing equidistant from each other, mm -hmm. uh, people uh, have arranged themselves into groups of people talking, right? You naturally just form clusters uh, based on geographic proximity. And you might think those people know each other, even though they might have just met. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the laws, proximity. So what does that mean in terms of charts? Yeah, so in terms of charts, it means for things that you would like to have your audience associate together, uh, it means you should put them near each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the legend, you would put, let's say I've got a, a line chart of the GDP growth of uh, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Oceania countries. I'm not going to have Australia and Fiji and all those countries in my legend down the bottom, mm -hmm. thus forcing my user to eye track up to the chart. I'm just going to put the word Australia at the end of the damn line, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it just makes it so much easier to consume. Makes total sense. I love how you said like <laughs> Bill Gates and Microsoft. What would you, what'd be the one thing you'd ask Bill Gates if you had him for dinner? Had him over oh, for dinner. Yeah, yeah. I, there's another thing I'm going to get myself in trouble for one day. But yeah, if if I did uh, find myself, you know, two minutes in an elevator with Bill Gates, that's that's all I've got. I don't have any more time. Uh, I probably, yeah, wouldn't be asking about, uh, you know, world hunger or, um, you know, curing world diseases. I would probably just ask him, um, yeah, wh why is there no option in Excel for me to just right click and just put the uh, legend next to the line? That, that, that's, that's the one thing I would ask. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, the, definitely very valid point. Okay, so that's the proximity uh, gestalt law. What about, uh, what's the next one? How and, and how do they work together? 
Uh, sure, yeah. So the next, uh, well, they're not really in order, but yeah, another Gestalt law is uh, similarity. Uh-huh. Uh, and so humans group things uh, together in, in their brains uh, if they are uh, have some sort of similar trait. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so if I've just got a, uh, a grid of like, I don't know, uh, 10 dots, mm-hmm. and some of those dots are, are red, uh, and some of those dots are gray, and some of those dots are green, uh, you'll, you'll group the ones that are red uh, and the ones that are green, uh, mm-hmm. just because they're similarly colored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, oh, and, that, and it goes for other traits. Like if I've got like 10 circles mm-hmm. uh, and uh, three triangles, you, know, you will group the triangles together. Uh, and and so that's the Gestalt law of similarity. Uh, humans group things together that are similar. Mm-hmm. And so for which our sounds chart, really trivial, right? Like when you think about it. Yeah. Why do they have to uh, like put them into laws? Like, uh, isn't this stuff really obvious? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it is, but it's it's almost like they it, it needs to be defined because it's like we do forget it. Um, and and so for example, like on our charts, uh, you might. Put uh, going back to that example with the Oceania countries, um, I would make the word Australia the same color as the line for Australia, um, thus increasing the the similarity uh, there. Um, now, in yeah, in regards to it being obvious, um, some of the other laws were a bit less obvious. I think yeah, those those first two were tri- can seem quite trivial, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, there are a whole bunch of other Gestalt laws. Um, like there's the Gestalt law of continuity, um, the Gestalt law of enclosure. Uh, some of the others just weren't immediately, uh, yeah, obvious and, and might be a bit more interesting. Okay. Okay, cool. So we'll also link those in the show notes, not to go into too much, uh, mm-hmm. tangent here, but sounds like really cool Gestalt laws. How, how did you like come across these things? You know, like both the Cleveland and McGill Gestalt laws, and you mentioned some other people already on, uh, on the show, um, it was it Edward uh, Tuft, Tuft, mm-hmm. uh, and so like this is a very um, unconventional approach to data visualization, very scientific approach. Why did you decide to mm. dive deep like this into data viz? Yeah, um, so I I dove deep here because about five years ago, I'd been working as a data scientist for about three years. And before that, I'd worked in data analytics and biostats. And and when I was working in uh, a commercial analytics company in Sydney, what I found as I kind of got more senior in my career, I started hearing the execs uh, that we'd be presenting to. They would always have these murmurs and comments about how they would feel that data science teams were speaking a different language to the rest of the business. Mm-hmm. And I'd hear them complaining that they weren't getting dividend or and returns on their investments in data science teams. Um, they'd talk about how data science teams were just focusing on the wrong problems. They weren't driving value, all of this. And I started to really think about how, if we found good results, like how do we present them to management in a way that's just super, super consumable. Mm-hmm. And, and I heard a comment from a colleague who said, 
you know, he, he looked at a presentation from someone and, and said, oh, wow, that's so simple. Like even a C-level executive could understand it. <laughs> like, and, like a five-year-old, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and it's, it, there's kind of, there, there is some truth to it. Like they, they have quite, you know, they, these are the sharpest people in the room, no doubt. I, yeah. you know, I'm not going to, you know, take away from that. But, but they, they sit through a lot of presentations. Yeah. And, and, and what comes with that is a very short attention span um, and low tolerance for like just a, a waffly presentation. And so I started to just think about, yeah, how can I make my own presentations short, snappy, concise, get to the point? And um, I started reading up on presentation theory and, and you know, you know, all different ways of telling stories and, you know, opening like theories like called bluff. It's like bottom line up front, like bring your takeaway right to the front and things like that. And I looked at, you know, what McKinsey and Bain are doing and all of this. And and then I said, yeah, but this doesn't fix the the, the charts. And I, that's when I started to read all the literature around uh, data viz and charts. Mm, okay, gotcha. And so very interesting. So I can see that your methods really um, profound and thorough. How? What about your method of teaching this stuff? Like at Story IQ, how do you teach these things when you go into a company? Like, you know, it's for some companies it's even unfathomable to hire a uh, a coaching company to coach their data science team on data storytelling. So, walk us through the process. Like once you have that initial conversation and you get the project, what? How do you teach the team? Sure. So we we start with the fundamentals, and what we find is that even talented data people have often not um, gone through the fundamentals of data visualization and data storytelling. So we start with those four keys uh, that I was mentioning before. Mm -hmm. we, we go through... So just to recap, audience, data, visuals, and... Oh, we, we didn't get to the fourth key. I think narrative is your fourth key. That's right. Yes. Yes. Maybe so, time yes. to comment on that. What's, what's the narrative about? Sure. So... If your audience data and visuals are good, mm -hmm. then you'll have a pretty good uh, presentation or dashboard, mm -hmm. but um, you'll just be presenting facts. Mm -hmm. And so it's the narrative that brings your story to life and actually gets people to figure out immediately, you know, what is the insight here um, and what do I need to do? Mm -hmm. And a lot of presentations will just just not get to the point they they don't have a reason for their existence and so uh, to give an example here uh let's say i'm let's say i've got a chart on um okay i, I was looking at some data the other day actually on uh us teens favorite social media platform uh -huh. over time and what this chart shows is that basically snapchat is getting killed um, Twitter's getting killed, Facebook's getting killed, but Instagram's gaining market share uh, every year uh, against uh, all of the other competitors. And instead of putting the title of my chart as uh, US teens' favorite social media platform over time, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is would, really, yeah, go ahead. Which we normally do, right? Well, yeah, well, and I taught statistics for first year stat for three years. That's exactly what I taught my students. Uh -huh. I said, uh, you know, they'd be like, okay, so what's the chart title? I'd say, well, what is your y-axis? Uh -huh. Okay, what is your x-axis? 
and and then repeat whatever your y-axis and x-axis represent <laughs> and, and 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 that's your title and and that's how the whole academic community does it yeah very true but it and and it's fine for a formal you know setting like that but the, the problem is that it's redundant because your your audience can read they can read what your y-axis says they can read what your x-axis says so why just you know, concatenate that them together into your title. It, it, it makes no sense. And so instead, we encourage uh, people to go, okay, um, my title for my social media chart is going to be, um, let's pull marketing spend from Twitter and Facebook and re-divert it into Instagram in Q4. Very cool. So like an act yeah. action, take call to yeah. action. Nice. Yeah, that's, and, that's like your narrative. Yeah, and that's the narrative. And and tying back to that other um, you know query about you know how do we go into companies? You know th that's really what brings us in because the the buyers of the training who are actually signing off on this, like the managers, just say thank goodness, right? Like we're getting to a point where people sit in a meeting and just get to the point. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up. Okay. Okay. That's a really cool tip about. Uh, uh, having the title build the narrative already. What other tips can you uh, give on like building a narrative into your data story or turning your presentation from just raw facts into a data story? Yeah. Um, I'd say probably the first one is, okay, let's say you are doing a PowerPoint presentation and, uh -huh. and let's face it, you know, whether we like it or not, uh, well, I've got a colleague who says power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. Um, <laughs> I but... love PowerPoint. I don't know what, you, what you're talking about. That's one of my favorite tools. <laughs> yeah, look, and, and Kirill, I, I, I like it too. I mean, there's a reason that most TED Talks are done in PowerPoint. It <laughs> is a great storytelling tool. Um, and, and so if you are working in PowerPoint, the first thing I'd say for great narrative and storytelling is to shut down PowerPoint and think about what is the structure of my story? How do I want to open here? How do I want to close? What's my beginning? What's my middle? What's my end? Uh, what is my key takeaway? And maybe even get some post-it notes out and say, okay, here's all of the information I want to get across. What order do I want to get it across in? Um, so that that's one of the first things. Mm -hmm. Um, and then just in terms of the narrative, um, being a little bit creative. Uh, as data scientists, we often will just fall back on the data mm -hmm. and you know, let the data speak for itself, all of that sort of thing. But there's room for uh, there's really room for blowing the pres uh, the, the audience away. Uh, with using more exciting narrative. So, so as an example here, uh, um, let's say I was presenting data on um, the relative sales of the top three smartphone manufacturers over the last uh, 10 years, let's say. So we've got Apple, we've got Samsung, uh, we've got Huawei. And I could present that in a way that just goes, okay, Apple led in Q1, uh, you know, of this year, and then, you know, Samsung gained share in this quarter, and, and I could keep going that way. But if I was presenting that, um, 
to a less formal audience. Well, let's say it, it's the business setting, but I've got scope for kind, kind of being a bit creative. I might um, walk on stage and say, in the beginning, there was the iPhone. <laughs> um, and Or I might say, um, in the beginning, Jobs created the iPhone and he saw that it was good. Um, and so you've got your, your chart that shows, you know, that the initial phases of uh, Apple's uh, journey back in 2007. Next slide, you might say, and Samsung also saw that the iPhone was good. So they said, let there be a galaxy. <laughs> and, and, and so you're, you're kind of tying in like a theme from a, a, a book or story or song from popular culture into your uh, data story to just make it more entertaining uh, mm -hmm. for for the audience, and then and then the third phase. Now you're showing the the growth in Huawei. Next slide, and you say, uh, and Huawei said, "Let us make a phone in their image after their likeness." Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, that's just some ideas around uh, yeah tying in um, more engaging language. That that's a fairly extreme example. I probably wouldn't you know do that for a a CFO or something, but it's just a, an, a, an example of, yeah, tying in uh, something from popular culture into your stories. And it ties back into the point that you mentioned at the very start, like you got to make sure people feel something, right? Like mm. you, by making it entertaining, you'll, you'll make sure people are having fun. Like I'll give you an example. One time I was presenting um, a very kind of technical solution to a a uh, mailing campaign we did at uh, an industry fund, uh, like um, basically like a pension fund in Australia, an industry fund. And yeah. uh, to 200 people of executive managerial level, it was not a data science conference by any means. It was a conference on, for pension funds, but we yeah. just had a really cool success there. And so the way I was like, ah, oh, how, like I didn't even know like the things you, you're sharing here today, but kind of intuitively I felt that if I just present what we did in the way we did it, Everybody's gonna fall asleep. So, mm, like, mm. I I shifted the paradigm. I love that. I love that phrase. Like, I shifted the paradigm, mm. and I said, I'm gonna present it in a way that I will start a presentation by saying, I'm gonna show you what it's like to be a data scientist. I know not yes. like most of you don't even have data science teams in your companies, and we we had some massive success. We were able to reduce like a backlog from 45 days down to like three days using data science compared to like this year compared to other years. And what I'm going to show you is like how data science thinks and what kind yep. of work we do. And so I started a presentation like that and already got them on the edges of their seats, like mm, nice. feeling that, oh, I'm going to be like a data scientist. And so then I walked them through the technical parts, but in a simplified manner, but they were already hooked rather than just listening to this boring stuff. They felt like it's them living this story. Like when you watch yes. a movie, you associate with the character, right? So here, I got them to associate with my journey, to associate with the decisions and fears and frustrations that I went through. And like yep. they felt really emotional. At the end of the day, like, like it was, a, I don't know, maybe one of the only talks that actually got like an ovation at the end. And, like everybody Love was that. super pumped about it. And like our company got so many questions after, like, how do you build a data science team? What is data science? And so on. Because everybody was like hooked. They loved the whole journey. That's it, Carol. And it's because you got them to feel something. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when you talked about your own frustrations and successes in data science, you know, that that's coming from the heart. And, and they would have, you know, felt it as well as, as you relayed the stories. That's great. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, um, we're actually almost out of time. Isaac, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like, I had a lot of time, uh, fun. And 
I think we could keep talking about this forever. There's so many yeah. tips and hacks about all this stuff. Um, so before I let you go, is there is there any like materials you might have that are publicly available on uh, Story IQ that people can reference and like learn more? And also, where is the best places to get in touch with you and find you if somebody wants to learn or ask you some questions, or maybe there's some companies that are in need of getting this training into the organization? Sure, no worries. Yeah, so I guess as, as a first step for, for next steps with learning, I would say um, my co-founder, Dominic, his TED Talk uh, just went up on YouTube literally last week. Uh, so if you go into YouTube and type in Dominic Bohan, that's B-O-H-A-N, uh, TED Talk, uh, you'll see his TED Talk on data stories. Um, and then in terms of getting in touch, um, I'm nowhere near my LinkedIn limit. Uh, so feel free to just uh, add me up on LinkedIn. Happy to connect um, with any listeners. Um, and then you can reach us through storyiq.com. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you once again so much. And one final question for you. What's a book that's changed the course of your career or the trajectory of your life that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, great. Um, I would I would recommend Stephen Few's book, Show Me the Numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, I normally don't recommend it when people ask me for a book, but since this is a data science audience and, and more technical, um, you know, we're used to getting through really dry, heavy books. And so uh, you will be able to get through this one and just packed with so much applicable uh, data viz and data storytelling knowledge. So, yeah, Stephen Few, uh, show me the numbers. Fantastic. Heard that book mentioned a couple of times on the podcast already. So, oh, awesome. Yeah. Make sure to check it out, guys uh, and girls. Stephen, Stephen Few, show me the numbers. On that note, Isaac, once again, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed our chat and I look forward to connecting in person one day. Uh, thank you so much, Kirill. And really appreciate the research, you know, you put into this interview as well. It's just a pleasure, you know, uh, talking to someone who's, who's really, you know, done their, their, their pre-research. So Cheers. thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being a part of our conversation today with Isaac. I definitely enjoyed myself and got to learn a lot of new things about data visualization and data storytelling. It's always a great pleasure to talk to somebody who's dedicated um, their whole career in focusing in one space and developing that and not only developing that for themselves, but also teaching other people and coaching others. Um, My favorite takeaway from this podcast was uh, the Cleveland and McGill ranking of elementary perceptual task scale. Um, You never actually think about it. Some of these things might feel intuitive sometimes, but until you have scientific backing, until you have this evidence that uh, people perceive line charts better than bar charts, bar charts better than stacked bar charts, stacked bar charts better than area-related uh, charts, area-related charts better than than color-related charts. Until you have that scientific uh, explanation of it, you can, you're can still prone to making mistakes. I think now that we've covered this, and especially if you um, go and research this a bit further, whether it's the Cleveland and McGill system or the Gestalt laws, I think that can give you a really strong boost in your uh, visualization skills and i think that's what uh, this podcast was it's like a invitation to explore this space further of course we couldn't have covered everything in an hour but already you can see the value and uh, if you do then i highly encourage you to explore this space further we'll link to all the materials necessary for you to proceed in the show notes as usual 
On that note, make sure to connect with Isaac. He's uh, on LinkedIn and also on um, storyiq.com. That's where you can get in touch with him, whether you want to ask him some questions about visualization or uh, your company is looking to get expert storytellers or develop expert storytellers in-house and Isaac and his team can definitely help with that. As usual, all of the materials uh, mentioned on this podcast as well as the transcript are available in the show notes, which are located at superdatascience.com slash 329. That's superdatascience.com slash 329. Um, we spoke with Isaac after the podcast and there's a possibility that him or somebody else from his team will be joining us at Data Science Go 2020 in November. Uh, that's not 100% yet, but it gives you a feel for the caliber of people that we're inviting to speak at Data Science Go. So if you're able to make it, would love to have you there. And as usual, if uh, you know anybody in the space of data science uh, who is interested in storytelling, who needs to get better, or is trying, is striving to get better at storytelling, then send them this episode. It's very easy to share. Just send the link, superdatascience.com slash 329, and maybe you will change the trajectory of somebody's career and help them become better at data visualization. And on that note, thank you so much for being here, my friends. I can't wait to see you back here next time. And until then... Happy analyzing.